0: Heavenly Father, we uh, do pray that today as we um, open your scriptures, we thank you for them. We pray that uh, you would give us ears to hear Uh, by your spirit, Lord, um, apply the truths of these, uh, what we learn about today, to our hearts. May we come to see even more uh, your glory and the wonder of our Lord and Saviour Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: Hey, this morning I'm going to read from the book of Isaiah, chapter 49, verses 1 to 7. Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my mother's womb, he has spoken my name. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing at all. Yet what is due me is in the Lord's hand, and my reward is with my God. And now the Lord says, he who formed me in the womb to be his servant to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord and my God has been my strength. He says, it is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. This is what the Lord says, the Redeemer and Holy One of Israel, to him who has despised and abhorred by my nation, to the servants of rulers, kings will see you and stand up, princes will see and bow down, because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you.
0: Well, friends, welcome again. Uh, It's great to see you today, especially if you're visiting, and uh, uh, all of us, it's great to see uh, you here and together around God's Word. Um, In the lead up to Easter, if you were here last week, what we're doing over these next few weeks is going through a few passages from this ancient prophecy uh, of Isaiah. Um, They are sort of central and critical key passages in that ancient prophecy in understanding who Jesus is. And so in the lead-up to Easter, we're going to take this opportunity to go through um, these what are called the Servant Songs of Isaiah, the Songs of the Servants. They're key passages in the Old Testament, uh, and uh, one reason why they're so key, that we know they're so central to who Jesus is, uh, is because the New Testament sort of constantly refers to these passages. Uh, so to help us to understand what it is that Easter is all about, what it is that Jesus was all about and is all about uh, to understand Jesus himself. Last week we just quickly looked at um, this and I thought it might be helpful to have this overview again of the whole book. Last week we saw how the book fit in the big picture of God's, uh, of God's plan for his, his, his um, world, his plans of redemption and forgiveness uh, to, to bring this whole world to a new creation. Uh, Isaiah sort of dovetails on that. It, it sort of mirrors that. Uh, The whole book moves from the city of Jerusalem to a new Jerusalem, uh, from the fallen creation to a whole new creation, and it tells of how this transformation is going to happen. Uh, The first half, as we saw last week, uh, it it speaks of God's judgment on his people Israel uh, for failing to be what he had called them to be. Um, The middle is this kind of bridge section which asks the question, who are you going to trust? And the second half of the whole book this uh, incredible sort of change in, in the whole book happens, where the, the whole book shifts to talking about uh, God's salvation and restoration of his people, and not just his people, of the whole world. And that's where these servant songs fit in. You can see up there, there's these uh, five songs that fit through this second part of the book that introduce this character of the servants. He's a kind of shadowy figure. We, we met him last week, and if you're I'm interested to hear kind of the whole journey through these songs. Perhaps uh, you can hear last week's sermon on the net. Uh, But this figure of the servant is the key to Isaiah's prophecy. this whole movement towards restoration, salvation, not just for Israel but for the world. This servant is critical for it. He's he's the key. Uh, There's hints in the passage we looked at last week. If you are with us last week, there's kind of hints... In that passage, that this servant would have, um, uh, would have a ministry, would have a, a service that would be huge. It would ex- sort of um, grow past uh, even the people of Israel. We read last week that this would be the one who would bring justice to the nations. Uh, he would be the one in whom the islands would put their hope. Um, we kind of know from looking back that this servant is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus. Uh, But as you read through Isaiah, uh, as you read through Isaiah, and as we kind of get to this next song in chapter 49, there's this really interesting thing that happens. There's another character that's introduced. There's another character that's introduced in chapter 45, kind of in between last week's servant song and this week's. And he's this fascinating character of uh, Cyrus, Cyrus was this king of Persia uh, and God calls Cyrus, this is a really strange thing that happens in Isaiah, God calls this foreign king uh, his shepherd, who he would bring to shepherd Israel to rebuild Jerusalem. Um, 150 years after this was written, that's exactly what happened. Uh, You can read about it in Ezra chapter 1 this incredible thing, this foreign king who didn't worship the, the God of Israel. Uh, God brings him in and calls him, his he sort of uh, says that he would choose servant. And uh, the, the reason I mention that is, as you read through up to this point in chapter 49, you're kind of left thinking, maybe Cyrus is this, this servant, this figure who would be this incredible king to restore God's people. But it, it becomes clear as you read that Cyrus would never fit the bill, right? Uh, he was used by God, but not because of his own kind of merits, not because he was worthy. He, was, he worshipped other gods, as I said. Um, God used him to bring about a kind of political restoration, a salvation for the people of Israel, a physical return from exile. But this servant character we're looking at has a much bigger, a much deeper, much more incredible mission than just that sort of physical salvation, bringing people back from exile. He would bring about a spiritual return from exile. He would defeat the great eternal enemies of God's people, uh, the, the, the eternal enemies of sin and death. And so, friends, uh, as we, that's sort of how we get to this passage in front of us in chapter 9. And it is, I think, an astonishing Chapter. It's an astonishing chapter because for the first time we get to hear this servant himself. We get to hear the servant himself speak. This is the first time he speaks and it's a huge thing. It's a, it's a big deal. This king of God's people, the one who would redeem Israel as we saw, saw last week. Um, one of my school friends um, uh, from when I was at school was recently elected to federal parliament and it was fascinating for me to read his maiden speech, uh, his kind of opening speech to the Parliament. Uh, he, he'll give a lot of other speeches, but it's this one that everyone's interested in, right? This maiden opening speech. Um, it's got because it's uh, because it's your first speech, right? You've got everyone's attention. Uh, you, it's that speech that you kind of get an idea of what's driving you, what your what your priorities are, what your key kind of focus. Is what your heart is. Everyone's listening to what you've got to say, and that's uh, what is going to happen here in chapter forty-nine. It's a bit like that here, uh, the servant's maiden speech, right? And the first shock we get as we read is who he addresses his speech to, who he gives this speech to. He says, "Listen to me, you islands, hear this, you distant nations." Friends, can you imagine how that would go down Um, for my mate who's sort of given his maiden speech in Parliament? Right, you're supposed to be speaking to the people you're talking to, or you know, speaking to the people you represent. Uh, I think if my mate had begun his speech something like this, friends, this speech is for the entire world. Yeah, you you kind of raise a few eyebrows, right? Uh, It it raises the stakes too much for someone's maiden speech. But not this this figure we're looking at, this servant. Not this guy. This isn't over-the-top rhetoric for this servant. What he's on about, what is driving him, what's at his heart will be so big, it'll take up the whole world. It will take up the whole world. And that's what we read when we read and when we get to the next few verses. If you you can see it on the screen there, Isaiah writes this prophecy. The servant himself speaks and he says, Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my mother's womb, he has spoken my name. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. Incredible thing for this servant to say in his opening speech, the first thing that he says about himself. Friends, when we looked at the servant last week, we saw, if you remember, he used royal language. He was, or the Isaiah used royal language of him. He was the king, God's promised king. Uh, here the picture is more of, did you see it as we read through, the picture here is more of a prophet, uh, more of a prophet than a king, the one who speaks the words of God like a sword coming out of his mouth. He has made my mouth like a sharpened sword. Uh, the thing is here, that he gets called Israel, which is kind of a bit bizarre. What's going on with that? Uh, down the bottom here, yeah, uh, the Lord says to him, you are my servant Israel, in whom I will display my splendour. Uh, he gets called Israel, but then if you notice, as we read through later on in the passage, this servant is the one who would res- restore Israel, who would bring Israel back. Um, now, what's going on there? We mentioned it, we kind of flagged it last week. Uh, the servant's job is to restore Israel. Uh, he is, this servant figure, is the one who represents what the true Israel. He represents what Israel was always meant to be. God's people were always meant to do this. And this servant comes as a kind of representative figure. And while Cyrus used an army, this servant would use, well, he would use the word of God. He would use the word of God. He would be a polished arrow. A polished arrow. He would be God's weapon to achieve his purposes, to fight his battle, not through what Cyrus would do, not through leading an army. Uh, he would be God's weapon through proclaiming his word. And this great weapon of the Lord. You, did you see at the, at the bottom here? Uh, what would happen to this great one, God would display his splendour in him. It's astonishing. The one who made the universe, we read last week, in last week's passage, that the Lord, in uh, chapter 42, the Lord will not share his glory with anyone else. But he says here, I will display my splendour in this servant." See what see this is saying, you can look at this guy, you can look at this servant figure and when you look at him, you, you can see for yourself the splendour of God, the, the majesty, the glory of God. Well, how bright would this one shine, this splendour? And we kind of had a bit of an <laughs> illustration of that earlier in the kids talk, right, but um, I, I don't know if you've gone caving at all. Maybe you've um, uh, sort of uh, had experiences where you've gone to caves and you sort of have done exploring through the caves. I used to do a little bit of it as a kid, um, and uh, I just—and if you've been in a, in a cave or a caving sort of situation, you know the total darkness, right, in inside the cave. And the, the further you get in, it doesn't take too long before it's absolute darkness, no, no light whatsoever. And in that situation, your torch is your best friend, right? It's just uh, if you and if your torch runs out, you're you know you're you're up the creek without a paddle. Uh, Your torch is your best friend. Uh, But then, as you go through the cave, right, uh, and the torch becomes is so significant, it shines up where you're going to go. Then, when you sort of emerge out, uh, has anyone had this experience? You come out of the cave and you just get absolutely blinded, right, dazzled, you know, you can't see for a couple of minutes because of the contrast between what's in the cave and what you get, what's going on outside. Well, friends, God is saying here that this, this servant uh, won't be a torch. He'll be the sun. This servant won't be just uh, one torch lighting up one place. He will be the sun. He will be the source of light for the entire world. That's what he goes on to say and you can sort of see it up on the screen there. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to, gather, to bring Jacob back to him, to gather Israel to himself, for I'm honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has been my strength. He says, It is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I mean, that is an astonishing thing to say. If you think about the situation Israel was in, um, that was an impossible thing to do, <laughs> to see how they could possibly, that Israel at this time were in exile. They had faced God's judgment. They'd been sent away under cruel and oppressive foreign rulers. They weren't in their land. And God says of this servant, ah, it's too small a thing to fix that up. It's too small a thing to restore Israel. I will also make you, a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. This is the great work, friends. This is the great battle that God is using his servant to win, right? The Lord wields his servant to fight this battle to bring God's salvation to the ends of the earth. To bring his salvation to Africa, to Europe, to Russia and Asia, to the Americas, even beyond the ends of the earth, uh, to Australia, even beyond, beyond the ends of the earth, right down the bottom in Victor Harbour. It is an astonishing thought, um, the promise of this servant, the promise that we re- we're reading here in the Bible, written 3,000 years ago, had you in mind, had us in mind, it is a promise that its scope encompasses every time and every place. Everyone is just astonishing, but friends, increasingly, it's not just astonishing, increasingly, this is an outrageous claim, an offensive claim. And perhaps, perhaps you feel something of its offense as we think about it today. Perhaps you do feel something of it. Uh, because the claim here, do you see what's implied by this claim? That Jesus will be the light of the world. The claim is that the world needs a light. Implied in, underneath it all, that the claim is that the world needs a light. That every single person, all 7 billion people on this planet, all the many billions more who've ever lived, even you and I, The claim here is that in ourselves we are in darkness and desperate need of a saviour. And not just that, friends. It gets even worse. Uh, The claim here is not just that we need a saviour, but that there is one saviour, that the servant alone is that saviour. There is no other weapon God chooses this is the one in whom he, does, he will display his splendour. This servant is the one in whom he will display his splendour. It cuts against the grain of so much of the way we view the world, doesn't it, in our culture? Uh, I don't know if you feel that. I certainly do. Uh, in a kind of world, a culture that loses, is losing a concept of sin... Uh, that acknowledges that we make mistakes, but we kind of, uh, as as worse as that gets, uh, we are sorry for uh, other people who get offended by our mistakes uh, when they do, but uh, kind of making mistakes is the worst that it gets for us often. Uh, we are not sitting in darkness under the terrible judgment of God. This is according to our culture. Often, not always, but I don't know if you feel that, I certainly do. Uh, we like the thought that we can find our own way, our own spirituality, but the thought that there is one light for the whole world, one light, the Lord Jesus, is increasingly offensive, is it not, in our culture? And I suspect, friends, that this will be a key challenge facing Christian people uh, in, in, in the coming years. It already is a key challenge to graciously and clearly hold this universal scope of the gospel. This universal scope, not out of a reactive kind of anxious, fear-driven anger uh, when challenged, not anything like that, but to hold that out of love, out of love. Because do you see what's going on here? Uh, For those who will accept this servant, while it may put you against the grain of your culture, it will will, uh, enable you to start living with the true grain of the universe. It will enable you to start living in line with the purposes and plans of God, the Creator God, the Redeemer God, the Forgiver God, who has sent his Son and who made you and the whole world. Well, friends, uh, again, like last week, this picture of the servant is massive, isn't it? It's huge. Um, at times, we can feel its offence. Uh, but there's, you know, I've skipped over a few parts of the passage, right? And uh, we need to address them before we can wrap things up here as well. So we'll we'll do that. Uh, uh, we'll do that um, quickly as we do sort of uh, bring things to a close. We saw last week, if you remember, if you were here last week. Uh, do you remember we saw the most astonishing thing about this servant uh, in last week's passage? Wasn't that he would be God's king? That was astonishing enough. Uh, was, it wasn't what he would do, but it was how he would do it. Uh, last week, in the in the passage we read about this incredible servant, God's anointed king, who was so humble and tender that a bruised reed he would not break, and. Uh, a smoldering wick that was about to go out, he would not he would not snuff it out. This incredible tenderness. Uh, well, friends, in this passage, the camera zooms out um, and it shows this servant's mission, what we've just looked at, to bring this salvation to the whole ends of the earth. But if last week was a surprise, right? This tenderness mixed together with who the servant is, the surprise, I think, and the shock gets bigger here. It is not only tender towards bruised reeds, you see that as we read through, this servant in some way is himself a bruised reed. This servant is himself. You, it was hinted at in verse 2, um, if you've got the Bible open there, uh, we read that uh, this servant is like God's weapon, but he's in some way, he's concealed, right? He's hidden, he says the This servant is hidden, is not recognized, but you get this clearest in verse 4 this incredible insight into the deep personal struggle uh, of this servant. Uh, The servant says, He's been, he said that he's been called by God, right? Uh, And then he says this, but I said, I have laboured in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing at all. And you can just feel his discouragement here, can't you? Uh, Here is someone, this servant, who everything about we've just heard about, (laughs) about what he would do, the scope of his mission, what God would use him to accomplish... Well, he looks at his life, all he's worked for, and he thinks it's a failure. He can't see any fruit from it, so he's spent himself for nothing. And, friends, can you imagine hearing this for the first time? Can you imagine hearing this for the first time? Every hope of God's people at this point in Isaiah, every hope of God's people was pinned on this one, this coming servant of the Lord, every hope for, not just for God's people, but for the whole world, hinged on him, this figure. And here he is, discouraged and doubting. It's such a mystery, isn't it? I imagine hearing that the first time you'd just be... Um, couldn't quite figure out how it could happen. But of course, it's just what we see in Jesus, isn't it? Uh, we, we know... Um, uh, the book of Hebrews and the New Testament reflects on Jesus, and it tells us that Jesus was fully human in every way. He was tempted just like we are. Uh, he, he was tempted in every way, but he did not sin. He knows discouragements. He doesn't let sin. Uh, uh, he, but but al- although he knows this kind of discouragement, this uh, he doesn't. Uh, uh, he doesn't sin in the midst of it like so many times we do. He doesn't let his discouragement lead him to bitterness or envy or anger or against God. Uh, he turns his discouragement, do you notice what he does? In his discouragement, through his doubt, he trusts God. I've, I've laboured in vain, I've spent my strength for nothing at all, yet... What is due me is in the Lord's hand. My reward is with my God. He turns in his discouragement to trusting, clinging to his God. But he's not just discouraged. Do you see that? He's not just discouraging himself. He's despised by others. (laughs) He's despised by others. He knows discouragement and he knows opposition. Uh, If you read, we'll read this again. This is what the Lord says, the Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, to him who was despised and abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers, this one was deeply despised. Uh, Crowds, and and again, what a kind of strange thing for Isaiah to write about this incredible figure, but it makes it, we, we can kind of see. Uh, Jesus fits the bill, he doesn't, can't we? Uh, he knows opposition. He was deeply despised. Crowds of people uh, crowded around him yelling for his death, crying out for his death. He was the slave of rulers. He was betrayed and sold for the price of a slave. Uh, rulers like... Caiaphas, if you know the story, Herod, Pontius Pilate. So what's so kind of, um, in a way, puzzling, mysterious at this point in Isaiah? Well, we become so clear when we see Jesus. The incredible reality of this servant that is becoming clearer and clearer as we read these songs is that he brings together God's incredible mercy and Tenderness and his victory as the king, he is both the king and the savior. And we'll have to wait for a few weeks until chapter 53 until Isaiah really hones in on how he does that, on how this servant accomplishes this. Uh, and we'll see there that his suffering you know, there seems to be some sort of tension here between the suffering of this servant. And his reality of who he is, this king, we'll see in chapter 53 that this suffering isn't at all an obstacle for him, for his mission. It is actually a central part of it. But here, friends, I just want to finish as we think about this song. Uh, This song paints for us, it's a really vivid picture, isn't it, of the claims, this claim uh, of the rejection and hatred of this servant's Uh, that no way stops God's plans. He remains, this servant remains, God's mighty weapon who brings salvation to the world. And you read that at the end there. This is what God says to this one who was despised, who was rejected, who was uh, discouraged. He says, kings will see you and stand up. And kings don't stand up. You kind of stand up around them. They sit down on their throne. But this one, kings... Will be compelled to get off their throne and stand up before him. And then princes, well, they don't bow down to anyone except the king, right? But princes will bow down before him because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. Friends, uh, I just want to spend a second thinking through how we respond to all of this, how, uh, as we think through this servant's Um, this incredible salvation to the ends of the earth that has come to our little island, um, to our little part of our little island, how this servant's words can be received today. Um, You know as well as I that Jesus is despised today, is he he not? Uh, He's still rejected and ridiculed this servant. Sometimes it's outright. Okay. Occasionally you'll get some kind of outright ridicule. Uh, I was talking to a friend, or uh, uh, sort of in contact with a friend um, who uh, recently, a pastor of another church, who uh, recently just uh, received a a phone call out of the, well in response to a kind of community thing that he'd done, Uh, that was just all the person calling wanted to say was, I won't repeat the words, but he just abused him and hung up on the phone because he despises Jesus, and I mean that's just one story. Sometimes it's outright. More often, though, it's a kind of um, a kind of more subtle, and maybe a patronising kind of way that um, tries to tame this this great one, this this Lord of all. Tries to tame him and maybe set him aside. Every other wise teacher that ever lived, or. Uh, friends, in, the, in, in that kind of environment, and perhaps you're facing that kind of discouragement or that kind of opposition yourself. Uh, this is a great encouragement, isn't it? The servant being rejected is not new. The servant being rejected isn't new. It's not outs, and, and more than that, it is not outside of God's plan. It is not outside of God's plan. This was written hundreds of years before Jesus. Thousands of years ago, it's not outside of God's plan, and one day kings will stand up and princes will bow down before him. Friends, Jesus is the Lord. He is the Lord of your life. He is the Lord of the South Coast. Lord of the whole world, and one day everyone will acknowledge that. Friends, there's there's some kind of um, way in which uh, this um, ridicule can come to Jesus from outside, but I just want to also reflect on perhaps a more subtle way uh, that it's possible for God's people, for us even, uh, to despise this servant, a kind of way that we can, not usually outright... (laughs) Uh, But nevertheless, I think real. We can find ourselves thinking that... um, Do you remember we talked about Cyrus um, at the start and kind of Cyrus uh, is in contrast to this servant. Cyrus, God used him to bring about a a physical, political restoration through his power and through his armies. Um, But... The servant is in great contrast to Cyrus. Uh, he brings about God's purposes through his word and ultimately through his suffering. Um, it's possible, I think, for us that we can find ourselves thinking that the way the way of Cyrus in this world really is more effective, more significant than the way of the servants. Using this world's ideas of power and success and sort of using the structures of this world. We can talk more about being conquerors than sufferers. We can talk more about living a fulfilled life than a sacrificial one. Perhaps we can forget that Jesus' Jesus' way to exaltation was through his humiliation, was through the cross. He was raised as Lord, but only through the cross. And there's one remarkable passage in the New Testament that ties all this together, it's Paul's reflection uh, on Jesus in Philippians 2. He shows how Jesus, friends, and this is where we'll finish, Jesus gives this incredible confidence in the face of rejection, right? Incredible confidence in the face of rejection. He will be exalted. But he also sets up a whole new way of a whole new way of seeing the world, a whole new way of living, a whole new way of being his people the humble and self-sacrificial way of the cross. Philippians 2, uh, Paul writes this, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of, of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking for your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. And here he goes when he starts to reflect on how that Jesus provides the logic for all of what he's just said. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as this servant, as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, there it is, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even to death on a cross. This servant's rejection, even his death, is not outside of God's plan. The story, of course, doesn't finish there. The wonderful end to this story that Paul paints, it's the same story of the servant. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. I'm going to pray for us, friends, as we finish. Let's pray together. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for your word. Thank you for the incredible riches we find there. Lord, please, please. Uh, Help us uh, in our own weakness. uh, Help us in our own sin. Help us in our own distracted minds and hearts. Please help us to hear your word today. Lord, fill us with confidence. We pray uh, that Jesus is Lord and that there will come a day when everyone will acknowledge that. And Fill us with humility, Father, that we might... uh, in him live the way of the cross that we might know that he received his lordship through the cross help us lord to be those who live a kind of self-sacrificial life that's centered on your purposes the same life as the servant and we pray that you might do that by your spirit in us today in jesus name amen